Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In December 1991, a few hundred comic book collectors jammed into Sotheby's New York auction house for a highly anticipated sale. As the event got underway, among those raising a bidding paddle was a man dressed in a spandex Spider-Man suit. He insisted he was Peter Parker, but it turns out he was an actor sent by Marvel on a mission to purchase a prototype cover of Marvel Comics No. 2 dating back to 1938. With great power came great responsibility, and fake Spidey successfully secured it for $14,000. It was just one of 500 comics and original comic art that sold that day for over $1.2 million. The auction was a landmark moment for the industry and was the ripple that would set off the tidal wave of a speculation boom. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're tracking the comic book boom and bust of the 1990s. For a couple of years leading up to that historic auction at Sotheby's, the comic book industry was riding high. Thanks in part to Tim Burton's dark and stylish adaptation of a classic superhero story. Don't kill me! Don't kill me, man! I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. The 1989 Batman movie starring Michael Keaton as the millionaire Gotham City vigilante, alongside Jack Nicholson as the Joker, was influenced by Frank Miller's groundbreaking comic book miniseries, The Dark Knight Returns. It was released three years earlier in 1986 by DC Comics and put a new spin on Batman. Gone was the campy, caped crusader of the 60s TV show. The bams and the kapows were replaced by darkness and violence, as Batman became a hardened loner with no patience for criminals. Despite an initial backlash over the decision to cast Keaton as Batman, Tim Burton's adaptation became a pop culture phenomenon. In fact, it was the highest-grossing film of 1989, earning over $410 million worldwide. The success was thanks in part to an unprecedented merchandising and marketing campaign by Warner Brothers, the studio that made the movie. In the months leading up to the premiere, posters and billboards simply displayed the iconic Batman emblem with the movie's release date, and they seemed to be everywhere, building up an anticipation similar to what we saw with the Barbie movie in 2023. Even the Batman soundtrack by Prince helped fuel the phenomenon, with songs like Bat Dance, which is a six-minute mashup of movie dialogue over an infectious beat and shredding guitar. Author and comic book historian Jason Sachs says in 1989, Batman mania swept across North America. I think it's easy to forget how much Batman 89 was an enormous pop culture phenomenon. It hit like a lightning bolt and ordinary non-comic fans or casual comics fans were interested in the art form because they were excited for the Batman film. And then when the film came out and really hit the audiences in a big way in 89, uh, it continued 
uh, helped to build up a lot of momentum around the industry. In particular, demand for Batman comic books went through the roof. Comic book stores were barely able to keep up and sold about a half a million Batman comics a month. And the interest in Batman helped drive up sales of other comics too. You see, before the Batman movie, the general public's perception was that comics were mostly for little kids. But Jason Sachs says, the people drawn to stores looking for Batman comics found out there was lots of other stuff that appealed to older readers too. Books like Sandman and Doom Patrol, for example, from DC Comics, were um, there and available and just a little more mature in the right way, not just sex and violence, but intellectually and emotionally fitting an adult audience. So people were finding there was stuff that was very exciting to them. Plus, this was a time when there was lots of new talent causing a buzz in the comic book industry. Folks like Todd McFarlane on Spider-Man, folks like Rob Liefeld on The New Mutants, uh, folks like Jim Lee and Mark Silvestri on the X-Men titles, Will Portasio as well with that group, were showing just a new ver- new type of comic art that felt different, felt new, felt it really appealed to younger readers. And so whether you were college age or younger than college age, you were coming into comics, maybe trying out a little bit and discovering there's stuff that really fit your view of the world. Jason mentioned Jim Lee, who I should clarify is no relation to Stan Lee, the legendary comic book creator behind Marvel superheroes like Spider-Man, Iron Man, and the Hulk. In 1991, at the age of just 27, Jim Lee was considered the biggest young star in the comic industry. He started working at Marvel five years earlier, after graduating from Princeton with a BA in psychology. Instead of becoming a doctor, Lee decided to pursue his other passion, drawing comics. He put together samples of his superhero drawings and began knocking on doors. Lee was met with one rejection after another until he handed over his samples to a Marvel editor at a comic book convention. The editor was so impressed that he hired Lee on the spot. And from there, it wouldn't take long for Lee to climb the ranks at Marvel, thanks to his detailed and vivid illustrations in books like The Punisher. Then, Lee was tapped to draw the latest X-Men series, alongside longtime Marvel writer Chris Claremont. For Lee, it was a dream come true. He had grown up reading and collecting X-Men comics, which featured a group of outcast mutants born with the X-Factor chromosome that gives them special superhuman power. The series was originally created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby in 1963 under the title The Uncanny X-Men. Through the 70s and 80s, the X-Men comic books were big sellers, but then Jim Lee's series took things to a whole other stratosphere. X-Men number one, released in August 1991, sold more than 8 million copies, making it the largest selling issue in history. So what exactly was going on 30 years ago? Why was there so much excitement for this one particular comic? Well, a couple of things. First of all, as I mentioned, the Batman movie had generated a massive new interest. Suddenly, it was cool to be crazy about comic books. Also, shops were popping up in malls and on main streets around North America, thanks to a move by publishers 15 years earlier to concentrate on their most loyal buyers who shopped at specialty comic book shops. Distributors offered deep discounts to the shops, unlike grocery stores and drugstores where comics were traditionally sold. In exchange for the deep discounts, comic book shops gave up the right to return unsold merchandise to publishers, 
something that grocery and drugstores had always been able to do. This change allowed small publishers to enter the market. No longer did they have to worry about costly returns. Plus, printing and color technology had become less expensive and accessible enough that independent comic companies were able to create products that looked as refined and professional as what Marvel and DC were making. And as a result, new comics proliferated. By the 1990s, stores that typically carried 70 or 80 titles now offered as many as 500 titles. Everything from superheroes and aliens to comic books about spies and cowboys. There was literally something for everyone. Another big thing happening in the comic book industry actually has ties to the trading card frenzy that began in the late 80s, something we covered earlier on History of the 90s. Many of the collectors and speculators swept up in the trading card boom expanded their focus to comic books, pushing up the prices for old books, and in some cases, prices went through the roof. For example, in 1971, a mint copy of Action Comics No. 1 from 1938 was worth about $300. 20 years later, in 1991, it was selling for $100,000. In response to the growing market, publishers like DC and Marvel churned out new titles and employed novel tactics, including releasing certain issues with multiple covers, known as variants. So getting back to that X-Men number one, which sold 8 million copies, Jason Sachs says you can chalk that up to the fact that Marvel released five different versions over the course of a month. At five different covers, lettered A through E, and had different members of the X-Men team uh, fighting Magneto in a parody of the cover of the original X-Men number one from 1963. And then there was a gateway cover, a gatefold cover, which had all five of the images all put together. Kids and collectors scrambled to get each one of the X-Men variants, leading to the record-breaking sales. X-Men 1 wasn't the first comic with multiple covers. In 1986, the first issue of the DC comic The Man of Steel featuring Superman was released with two different covers with the sole purpose of boosting sagging sales. And it worked. But in the 80s, that kind of marketing ploy was still pretty rare. In fact, in an interview for IGN, Todd McFarlane said when he suggested two versions of a cover for the 300th issue of The Amazing Spider-Man in 1988, he was shot down by Marvel executives. They said, quote, Todd, nobody does more than one cover for a book. That's silly. By the 90s, however, variant covers exploded as publishers cashed in on the red-hot market. Each new release outdid the last as publishers introduced things like foil and hologram covers. Readers were told to collect them all, with promises of eventually getting rich. So many people felt they needed to buy multiple copies, one to read and one to save. So no surprise, variant covers and other marketing gimmicks helped drive sales through the roof. And it led to rampant speculation. Comics were suddenly considered a commodity whose value would increase over time. Sadly, it seemed no one really understood that it is scarcity that drives up prices. When thousands or millions of the same comic, like X-Men 1, flood the market, those comics are destined to end up in the dollar bin. Either way, at the beginning of the 90s, it seemed like comic books couldn't get any hotter. Then an historic and highly hyped auction set the whole industry on fire. On 
On December 18, 1991, Sotheby's hosted its first ever comic auction at its swanky Manhattan facilities, which are normally reserved for fine art. The auction included 500 rare single books and original artwork. And bidding was dominated by one young man. And it wasn't that guy dressed up as Spider-Man who I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. It was actually 26-year-old Harold Anderson from Florence, Alabama. He purchased 21 items, spending over $200,000 on comic books and artwork. Most notably, he fought hard against an anonymous bidder to win a comic that featured the debut of Batman. Anderson paid $55,000 for Detective Comics number 27, which originally sold on newsstands in 1939 for a dime. $55,000 was nearly double what Sotheby's expected, and it set a record at the time for the most expensive comic sold at auction. Anderson snagged several first issues of comic books, including a copy of Action Comics number one from 1938, the comic that introduced the role to Superman. That one cost him $29,000. An excited Anderson told reporters who were on hand to witness the auction that he believed comic books were on the ground floor of a collectible explosion led by baseball cards. With the help from his father's business, the Anderson Media Corporation, he planned to use the comics he bought to create a traveling museum that toured around the U.S. visiting towns and cities. The most expensive item sold at the auction incidentally wasn't a comic book, but rather an original oil painting of a nude Vampirella. It was created in 1969 by illustrator Frank Frazetta when the vampire superheroine was introduced in a comic by Warren Publishing. It was purchased at the Sotheby's auction by an anonymous telephone bidder for $70,000. The success of the auction sent shockwaves through the comic book industry, and it was something closely watched by mainstream media as well. A story appeared on the front page of the Chicago Tribune with the headline, Holy Bidding War, Batman, We're Rich. Similar coverage appeared in the Washington Post and the New York Times, which ran a headline that said, Holy Record Breaker, $55,000 for first Batman comic. News of the comic book windfalls had many people going through their basements and attics looking for long-lost relics that might be worth big bucks. But not all of the coveted items at the auction were antiques. Two young illustrators sold their recent works, proving that they had become superstars of the industry. 37 pages of original artwork by Jim Lee that made up the first issue of the new X-Men series from just three months earlier sold for $40,000. And Jason Sachs says original artwork from Todd McFarlane's Superman No. 1, published in 1990, also sold at auction for $44,000. That was one of those moments where the light bulb appeared above Todd McFarlane's head and he said, you know, I could make a lot more money if I was working for it myself, if I wasn't wor working for Marvel, if I was creating my own IP, this money would be multiplied because I would be able to collect. Uh, instead of working for hire and just getting what Marvel's giving me, I would be able to work for myself and be able to make all the royalties I want to make from my work. So we saw this $44,000 in a way as being a down payment towards what he could make in the future. To understand what happened next, you need to understand how things work at DC and Marvel Comics, and even some of the smaller publishers. In the comic book industry, creators are hired on contract. So no matter what they create under the publisher's banner, it belongs to the publisher. 
Unless a book sells really big amounts, the creator is not given any royalties. Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee, along with Rob Liefeld, another young star who created the X-Force in 1990, were definitely earning royalties. But this new generation of talent wanted more, and not just more money, they wanted freedom too. So McFarlane, Lee, and Liefeld, along with several other popular young artists, including Eric Larson, Will Sportaccio, Jim Valentino, and Mark Silvestri, left Marvel to form their own publishing company called Image Comics. And they said, let's just put out books th that we really care about. Let's do work that's meaningful to us. So each of the creators had ideas in mind, as, as you often do, and if you're in a creative profession, and they decided to just try it out, put out their own line. In a now notorious meeting, the group showed up at Marvel offices to tell executives they were all quitting. They then went to DC Comics the next day and said, hey, we're just telling you we're going somewhere else now. We're never going to work for you. Uh, and then they just went off to California, got together at Silvestri's Beach House in Malibu and created the, the form for Image Comics. Image Comics shook up the industry, giving Marvel and DC an unexpected new competitor made up of some of their biggest ex-stars. In fact, the seven creators who left the big two to start Image had worked on 44 of the 50 biggest-selling books of 91. Image Comics' first release, Liefeld's Youngblood No. 1, was released six months later in April 1992, and it sold over a million copies, placing sixth in monthly sales, which was a huge feat for a book not published by Marvel or DC. Then the next month, McFarlane's Spawn No. 1 was released, selling 1.7 million copies, making it the number one comic in the country, outpacing Marvel's flagship title, X-Men. By the end of 1992, Image had 24 of the top 100 selling books released that year, which was an unheard of accomplishment for a creator-owned publishing company. Everywhere they went, the Image founders were followed by adoring fans. Their signings were events of a size typically safe for rock stars. In fact, 1992's Chicago Comic-Con needed a special tent in its parking lot just to accommodate Image's tens of thousands of supporters. But managing the success wasn't always easy for the new publisher. There were a tremendous amount of delays in the image books. Some creators were, became notorious for the delays. There was one month where literally every single image comic was delayed. In some cases, advertised comics never came out at all. But despite the struggles, image was still moving massive numbers of comics. At the same time, there was another new publisher on the scene, also causing waves in the industry. Valiant Comics was co-founded in 1989 by comic legend Jim Shooter, two years after he was fired as editor-in-chief at Marvel, along with Bob Layton, who was known for his work on Marvel Comics, Iron Man and Hercules. It wouldn't take long for Valiant to become a force in the comic industry, with a universe of new and classic characters. They bought the copyright for several forgotten superheroes, like Solar, Man of the Atom, and Magnus, Robot Fighter, and then updated and altered them. The success of those paved the way for Valiant's new titles like Bloodshot, Harbinger, and Ninjak. By the end of 1992, industry trade magazine Wizard reported that seven of the ten best-selling comics of December were Valiant series, and their market share would continue to grow giving the big two a run for their money. 
And just like DC and Marvel, Valiant helped inflate the speculators' bubble with their own marketing gimmicks, including the now-famous gold logo issues, which were released in limited amounts, usually about 5,000 per issue. They were awarded to retailers and fans who helped support Valiant, meaning if a retailer bought so many titles, they would get one or two special editions with a gold ink logo in the title as a thank you. This created a new income stream for Valiant. And maybe even more importantly, it created another unique collectible variant. Kevin Van Hook, an artist and writer who worked at Valiant, told IGN that it got to the point where some people in the comics press referred to Valiant as the Franklin Mint of comics because they created and manufactured collectibles. Van Hook, incidentally, was co-creator of Valiant's 1993 comic Bloodshot No. 1, which was the first of many shiny metallic chromium covers released by the publisher, which became another fan favorite in the 90s. But it wasn't just variant covers and collector items that propelled the comic industry in the early 90s. There were also some massive storylines that caught everyone's attention. Man of Steel has proven to be as vulnerable as the mere mortals who've looked up to him for more than half a century. Superman died Wednesday. East Greg Agnew reports on a world without the first superhero. On November 17, 1992, DC Comics killed off one of its oldest and most famous superheroes, and it became an international news event. Perhaps it was a slow news day. Maybe Superman means more to people because he's an OG superhero. But either way, the attention his demise received even caught the writers of the series off guard. Throughout a six-issue storyline, Superman battles a titanic monstrosity known as Doomsday, eventually dying from wounds he suffered while saving Metropolis. The battle concluded on the final page of Superman 75. And demand for that issue was so huge that fans waited patiently in long lines outside comic shops to get a copy on release day. As a result, shops sold out almost immediately after opening their doors, some selling 500 copies in under 30 minutes. The plain newsstand edition was $1.25, while a deluxe bagged edition that included a commemorative armband, an obituary, and a trading card cost $2.50. Almost immediately, the deluxe edition was being resold for $100 by speculators. Anticipating the demand, DC Comics printed more than 3 million copies of Superman 75, and even still, they ran two more print runs of the issue to keep up. It was the biggest press run ever for the Superman comic. Ironically, before the Doomsday series, Superman had become pretty passé. Young comic book readers thought he was too perfect and kind of lame in his blue and red leotard compared to the new generation of flawed superheroes like the Punisher and Wolverine. The Superman comics were kind of your mom and dad's comics. They were kind of dull, very up and down sorts of things with um, coherent stories and professional art that wasn't slick at all. And they were selling kind of mediocre numbers. Now DC's decision to kill him off had jump-started interest in the Man of Steel. It was a brilliant move and kind of interesting how it came about. The Superman team went on their editorial retreat as they did every year. And we're talking about what they can do to brighten up the Superman line in 91 and 92. Like, what are our plans for the next year? And they had landed on the idea of having Superman and Lois Lane get married, thinking that would get a lot of attention to the line. But you might remember there was a very popular TV show in the 90s that featured the superhero and his Daily Planet co-worker. You're 
Superman. Yeah, Lois. I mean, <laughs> you're Superman. <laughs> of course, you're Superman. How about some dinner? <laughs> The ABC series Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, wasn't on the air yet when DC's editorial team sat down to plot out Superman's next move. But the TV show was in the works, with ultimate plans for a wedding between the two main characters. So the Superman comic book team was essentially told by network executives, don't steal our thunder, come up with another idea. And then one of the people in the retreat suggested, kind of in a laughing way, well, what if we kill Superman? And uh, everyone laughed kind of uncomfortably, and they said, what the heck, why not? The death of Superman would go on to be the best-selling comic book of 1992. But it came at a cost for the entire industry. Killing off a character only to bring him back in a later issue is not uncommon. But even still, when DC resurrected Superman less than a year later in June 1993, the decision wasn't met with enthusiasm. Comic shops believed the comic would sell through the roof again. But at that point, everyone realized they'd kind of been conned, kind of a sense of feeling cheated. And the Return of Superman comic was was bought by comic shops in like over a million copies, but not very many copies were sold. And it was an enormous bust for the stores because they had invested the money in the copies of the book and it never sold well. And remember what I said earlier about the deal between publishers and bookstores? The specialty shops got deep discounts on comics compared to newsstands, but in exchange, the shops gave up their right to return any unsold copies. Well, when the return of Superman was a flop, stores were stuck with stacks upon stacks of unsold copies. Things would get even worse as they ran into major cash flow problems because of those delayed image comics they had purchased and were late or not arriving at all. At the same time, readers were finally growing tired of the variant covers and storyline events, like the much-hated Spider-Man clone saga, which was originally supposed to rival the death of Superman, but quickly became one of the most controversial Spider-Man stories ever told. Plus, the market had become completely oversaturated. There were just so many comic books on the rack. There were so many different publishers out there, so many different people chasing the dollar that there was just no way to to, uh, make a decision as a reader. As a result of the discontent, sales of comic books began to nosedive, adding even more pressure on comic book stores. By the end of 93, nine out of every 10 comic book stores had closed down. The comic book bubble had finally burst. Speculators left comics behind as their sales potential plummeted. Publishers responded by cutting back their lines, which led to even more shops closing. By the mid-90s, the landscape of the comic book industry was undergoing massive changes. Over at Valiant Comics, Jim Shooter was forced out by the venture capital company that got Valiant on its feet. They weren't interested in being permanent investors and sold the company for $65 million to Acclaim Entertainment, the publisher of Nintendo and Sega Software. And Acclaim wasn't all that interested in the Valiant universe or continuing the tightly woven storytelling that Jim Shooter had started for the company. Meantime, Image Comics had lost two of its founders, 
Rob Liefeld left amid a swirl of controversy after he'd created a competitive comics company and was accused of attempting to poach talent from Image. Then Jim Lee sold his studio Wildstorm to DC Comics so he could focus on the creative side. A bunch of smaller comic book publishers also went under during this period, including Malibu Comics, Eclipse Comics, and Comico Comics. And in a move that seems nearly impossible today, Marvel declared bankruptcy. On December 27, 1996, the publisher known for legendary comics like X-Men, Fantastic Four, and The Amazing Spider-Man filed for bankruptcy protection because of a web of debt and a complicated takeover battle. In 1989, at the height of the collector boom, Marvel was purchased by the cigar-smoking New York gazillionaire Ron Perlman for $82.5 million. Perlman decided to cash in on the sizzling comic book market by taking Marvel public, selling off about 30% of the company to public investors. That was followed by a massive acquisition spree by Perlman, who wanted to expand Marvel into other areas of the collectibles markets. So by 96, Marvel had taken on two different trading card lines, a sticker company, a couple of mainstream publishers, just a whole slew of different companies. And the debt that was piled upon the company was insane. And Perlman's timing was terrible because after the comic book bubble burst in 1993, Marvel sales plunged by a whopping 70%. In an effort to save the company, Perlman proposed a plan that would shift Marvel's focus from comics and cards to film. In 1995, he put forward the idea of launching Marvel Studios. But a group of shareholders led by Wall Street titan Carl Icahn opposed the plan. While the infighting continued, Marvel shares plummeted from just over $35 in 1993 to a low of $2.38 in 1996. Buried under a staggering debt of $610 million, Perlman filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy without shareholder consent. What he was really trying to do was retain control of the company so he could move forward with his plans for Marvel Studios. But following a two-year court battle, both Perlman and Carl Icahn lost. And the winner was Toy Biz, the exclusive maker of Marvel Toys. Under court restructuring, Marvel merged with Toy Biz, which was owned by Isaac Perlmutter. And with the help of his business partner, Avi Arad, they began to dig Marvel out of its slump. And they did it by auctioning off the film rights to some of its most prized characters. Spider-Man went to Sony, the Hulk went to Paramount, and 21st Century Fox bought the rights to Daredevil, the X-Men, and Fantastic Four. But then, in 2005, Marvel began an amazing comeback thanks to a unique financing deal with Merrill Lynch, which allowed them to start buying back their iconic characters. Under the deal, Marvel would receive $525 million over an eight-year period to make movies from 10 of their less popular characters, including Iron Man, Ant-Man, The Avengers, Black Panther, Captain America, and Doctor Strange. As collateral, Marvel promised if the first four films failed, Merrill Lynch would get the movie rights to the remaining six characters. The first movie was released in 2008 and kicked off a cinematic universe that is still unfolding today. I have indeed been uploaded, sir. We're online and ready. We start the virtual walk around. Importing preferences and calibrating virtual environment. Do check on control surfaces. As you wish. 
Iron Man not only saved the career of Robert Downey Jr., it was a box office smash, earning $585 million and kicked off a cycle of success for Marvel movies. The company had pulled off the impossible, a series of interconnected superhero movies that won over critics and audiences alike. And by 2009, that caught the eye of Disney, which swooped in and acquired Marvel for $4.3 billion. Today, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has become one of the world's most successful film franchises. The 33 films to date have made a combined $11.7 billion in the U.S. and almost $30 billion worldwide. As for DC Comics, which today is owned by Warner Brothers, it also has a successful film franchise based on its comic creations, although it's struggled a bit compared to Marvel. The DC Extended Universe began with The Man of Steel in 2013, and since then has released 15 other movies earning $7 billion worldwide. For both Marvel and DC, movies adapted from their comics have become a financial pillar, with box office receipts propping up and underwriting Marvel and DC's publishing efforts. As for Image Comics, they eventually overcame their shipping and deadline issues, which allowed them to focus their efforts on making outstanding comics. And it became a place where independent-minded creators would come and create work and really be rewarded in the way they deserve to be rewarded. One of those creators who joined Image was Robert Kirkman, who co-created the superhero comic Invincible. But what he really wanted to make was a zombie comic. So Kirkman pitched a book called World of Zombies to Image publisher and co-founder Jim Valentino. But Valentino wasn't impressed. In fact, he told Kirkman it was horrible. Valentino insisted that if the book was going to work, it needed a hook. Kirkman responded by saying, okay then, the zombies are an alien invasion. With the change, Valentino greenlit the series, but then three or four issues in, an Image boss called Kirkman and said, so where are the aliens? Kirkman laughed and said, there are no aliens. I just told you guys that so you would publish it. By the way, that series also had a new name. World of Zombies had become The Walking Dead, the post-apocalyptic zombie story starring Kentucky deputy Rick Grimes. Kirkman's Walking Dead comic started out with low sales, but steadily increased until it became one of the industry's top sellers. And from there, the TV show launched and a media empire was born. And because Image was founded with the intention of creators keeping control of their work, Rob Kirkman and Image have each reaped the rewards from the success of his Walking Dead series. Comic book sales have never again reached the height of the 90s. But like a superhero that won't die, the comic book industry continues to hang on to fight another day. After a massive spike in interest during COVID, when comic book sales jumped 62%, the industry has leveled out, with reported sales of just over $2 billion in 2022. And it's important to note that Japanese manga is far and away the primary sales driver. And thanks to the rise in manga and graphic novels, publishers no longer have to rely on variant covers and other marketing gimmicks for a steady source of revenue. And as a result, the comic book industry is healthier overall. Sure, the collector's market still remains strong on eBay, but the value of comic books are largely determined by supply and demand, rather than variance and speculation. And in case you're wondering whether some of those comics that sold huge numbers in the 90s are worth anything today, 
I'm sorry to tell you, X-Men 1 and Superman 75 aren't going to make you rich. You should probably just add them to your bin of Beanie Babies and baseball cards, another relic to remember the 90s. Thanks for listening to this look back at the comic book boom and bust, a topic suggested by many listeners over the past few years, including Ricky Roma, Patrick Bazanson, and Tom Campanolo. Thanks for your patience. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And thanks to my special guest, Jason Sachs. He is a comic book historian and co-author of the 90s edition of the Comic Book Chronicles, published by Two Moros. I'll put info about the book in the show notes. If you have an idea for an episode, let me know. You can email or send a message through social media. I'm on Instagram at that90spodcast, and the email for the show is 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Kanzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.